maybe this has something to do with the nationalistic fervor that sometimes arises. We're different. And there was a speed, a haste to get back to full openness, showing that, yeah, we had a bad first wave, but we got back. And that shows the strength of our governance. And all caution was thrown to the winds. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Over the last weeks and months, a lot of my friends have asked me, what will happen to Germany after Angela Merkel? And they seem quite worried about that. They see Merkel as the last sort of bastion of a stable Germany and really worry about the things that might happen to the country in the next five or 10 years. I think that concern is understandable, but it's doubly misplaced. It is misplaced because it lionizes Angela Merkel a little bit too much. There was certainly a moment in 2016, 2017, when it looked a little bit as though Merkel was kind of the leader of the free world, but she actually never stood for liberal democratic values as aggressively, as decisively as that story implies. She made complicated deals with people like Recep Erdogan, the Ofrotan leader of Turkey, in order to keep refugees out of the country. She tolerated Fidesz, the party of Viktor Orban, as the ally of Christian Democrats in the European Parliament until very, very recently on some of the biggest crises of the last 10 years, of the last 15 years, including the Euro crisis. She really had at best a muddled response. In effect, Germany was a reliable partner to the United States, but also a country but always wanted to make sure that it continues its business dealings with China and with Russia, up to Nord Stream 2, the ill-advised gas pipeline between Germany and Russia that is still being completed as I speak. In the same way, there may be some reasons for concern about the future direction of German foreign policy. It is certainly very concerning that Armin Laschet, the successor of Angela Merkel as the head of the Christian Democrats and likely the next chancellor if the Christian Democrats eke out the Green Party in elections this fall, was a kind of pro-Assad Twitter reply guy uh, for many years. But in practice, German foreign policy uh, under him is likely to be a kind of continuation of Merkel's stance, an instinctive friendship with the United States, but also a refusal to actually stand up to Russia or China. There's also confusion about the role of the Green Party. Many people in the United States celebrate the rise of the German Greens as a sign that politics is going far to the left in continental Europe. Others worry about it for the same reasons. In reality, the Green Party has long since become the party of highly educated, affluent people. It is on some cultural issues, clearly on the left of German politics, but it is far more moderate than the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on economic as well as on cultural issues. And finally, there's a good piece of news on the populism front, the alternative for Germany had 13, 14% of a vote in the last federal elections in some of the polls in between. It looked even stronger than that. It has clearly established itself as a core part of the German political system in the last years, and that is certainly very concerning. It remains very strong in some parts of East Germany. But nationally, 
its polls have stagnated and mildly declined. Uh, the party is now down to about 10% and may end up being only the fifth strongest party in the parliament. As somebody who grew up in Germany, I'm always instinctively skeptical of Germany. I always look for the bad when other people see the good. But right now, uh, Germany uh, looks by some length to be one of the most stable democracies in the world. And so there's certainly reason to pay attention to the upcoming German elections. There is no reason to think of it as an election with existential stakes in the way that we might see in France next year, that we are likely to see in India at the next election, or in the way we saw in the United States in 2020. Today, it's my real pleasure to have Raghu Ram Rajan on the podcast. Raghu is a very distinguished economist and institutional leader. He was the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, as well as the governor of the Reserve Bank of India. We had a really wide-ranging conversation about globalization, the shape of the world economy coming out of this pandemic, the way in which it is important, he says, and possible to combine globalization and economic growth with giving back real power and agency to local communities. But we also talked about the country of his birth, about the terrible pandemic, which is now sweeping the country and the ways in which Narendra Modi's government is undermining Indian democracy. Raghu Rajan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Listen, I'm really excited to talk about your work and, and the big questions you're asking about economic growth and globalization and how to maintain local communities. But it's hard not to start the conversation off talking about India a little bit. Obviously, the country is in the midst of a really terrible public health crisis at the moment. It seemed for a little while, as though India was doing relatively well in the pandemic, the government took quite extreme steps early in the pandemic. The disease seemed to be somewhat under control for much of it, but now obviously the country is in the midst of just a terrifying spike. Would you have a sense of what's happened or what went wrong to produce the terrible outcomes we're seeing right now? I think in the first wave, India had a more friendly virus, if there is such a thing in the sense that the deaths that were caused were relatively few, and it wasn't as infectious as this one is proving to be. So yes, for a while, there was a lot of anxiety. The Modi government reacted in a very dramatic fashion by locking down the economy for a month and a half or so. And what that did was certainly stifled economic activity, which in a sense, it's taken the lesson from that that we can't do it again because it would be too costly. Now, what happened was the virus did start growing, but India prepared at that point PPE equipment, social distancing, etc. And to the extent that these things are followed in India, it helped quell the first wave. What happened after that was the virus adapted. And the second wave has been much more brutal, both in terms of the rate of infection, but also its effects in terms of mortality and so on. 
And it's also affected the upper middle class. The previous wave swept through the slums, but didn't really quite reach the rural areas. There was some, but it died down. This one has attacked every segment of society, but you hear about it the most because it's attacking the upper middle class. And these queues of people who've desperately trying to get their loved ones into hospital, who you know, often had an easy time of doing it, but now are seeing the rationing. And so the anger wells up. It's not to minimize the size of the damage that's being done by this wave, but it's also the location of the damage is particularly visible, unlike in the past. What is less visible this time, which is probably as damaging, is it's gone to the rural areas, to the less developed areas where the hospital facilities are much weaker. And that we don't hear about, but it's going to be as damaging, if not worse. So this is a devastating second wave. And interestingly, if you read history, 1918 was similar for India. The first wave was relatively mild. The second wave was dramatic. And India was the country which suffered the worst in the 1918 pandemic. So far, we had thought India would escape. But this second wave looks like it's much worse. And I think what happened was the first wave sort of made us much more complacent as a society, but also made the government take its eyes off the ball. It was constantly congratulating itself on what a wonderful job it had done with the first wave. But anybody looking outside would have seen Brazil, would have seen other parts of the world getting hit by a really severe second wave. And perhaps we should have prepared more. The historic rhymes in this pandemic have been eerie from the beginning. And I was aware of the second wave in general being more deadly in 1918, 1919, when the first one, including in countries like the United States, I was not aware of the extent to which that was true in India then, and, and obviously tragically is true in India now. How much of this is about the underlying conditions and, as you're saying, the evolution in the virus, and how much of this is about government? You know, even when you look in the United States, it is very tempting to think that the quality of governments matters. And I think clearly we are seeing some differences in the handling of the Biden administration of the virus compared to the Trump administration, which I think has made a real difference. On the other hand, the difference between, for example, Florida or Texas on the one side and states like New York or Massachusetts on the other side doesn't seem to have been as big as people anticipated. You know, in India, obviously a lot of the drivers of the severity of this pandemic are things that no government would have been able to do something about at any speed, you know, extending the healthcare capacity, the extent to which India is just a very densely populated country with people living in very, very close quarters in its metropolitan centers. A lot of the driving factors of the severity of the pandemic are things that nobody could reasonably have done anything about in a year. And yet it does seem like this complacency you talked about, the sense that we've won and we didn't have to worry too much about it and didn't we do a great job, has been a real contributing factor. How much of a difference a more competent government might have made? Well, I think foresight was important, or at least fear. And what happened was after the first wave, and as the cases came down to about nationwide 9,000, 10,000 by December, January of this year, you know, some of the old facilities that were put in place were dismantled. We don't need them anymore, a little prematurely. But similarly, when you think about the vaccines, the whole agenda of the West has been let's vaccinate our population quickly so that we are immune to any further outbreaks or we minimize their scope. India should have realized that it had bought time and 
not that it was immune, but it was time to vaccinate. And it was quite open-handed with the vaccines, sending it around the world, even while it hadn't vaccinated its own population. Now, you can call that either magnanimity, which I think the world needs more of, or you can call it myopia, not seeing the size of the problem that was coming. Because once the government became aware of the size of the problem, as well as how long it would actually take to do vaccinations, suddenly exports stopped. So it's clearly a situation where it was not looking far enough into the future. Now, you know, as you said, any government would find dealing with the virus difficult. And in Indian conditions, with people sort of living much more closely together, with livelihoods often requiring you to go out from the house rather than stay at home and work, all that makes it much harder to combat the virus than in industrial countries. But one could argue that there could have been a lot that could have been done much better in preparing. And certainly, there was a sense that, and maybe this has something to do with the nationalistic fervor that sometimes arises, we're different. We're more immune. And uh, it can't touch us. And there was a speed, a haste to get back to full openness, showing that, yeah, we had a bad first wave, but we got back. And that shows the strength of our governance. And all caution was thrown to the winds. We had uh, cricket matches with 60,000 people and uh, with uh, very little social distancing. We had the famous Kummela, the festival where people come and bathe in the Ganges. And they were crowded one on top of each other, a super spreader event with millions of people coming there like no other. And there were the elections, which the government kept insisting on having election rallies. And this is where the leadership was centrally involved. And it would have been more appropriate for them to maybe call off the rallies, if not call off the elections, given the rise in the pandemic Mm. infections. Let me end with just balancing it a little bit. At any rate, what's past is past. I think what we need to look forward to is getting the country back on track, which means tackling the virus. There's an enormous private effort. There's an enormous civil society effort underway. People are working day and night. There's a lot of voluntary effort. This is quite something which gladdens the heart that the country can come together also at such times in the face of really a very tragic situation. Yeah, and that's inspiring. What is the situation more broadly in India when we look beyond the pandemic? You know, I spent a good amount of time in Delhi a few years ago at this point in December of 2014 and January of 2015, you know, when Modi had been in office for a few months. And I remember going to various events and talks and lectures and some people saying, you know, who knows, perhaps a few years from now, some of us might be in prison or free speech in India might really be restricted. And I remember thinking that that sounded a little exaggerated, a little melodramatic. And it's true that certainly there's not people being imprisoned for what they say at the mass scale in the way that is happening in Russia or Turkey. But it does seem as though free speech has been restricted in very serious ways, that many of the courts in India are much less independent than they used to be, that the press has become much more friendly to Modi, that the penalty for criticizing the prime minister has gone up quite a bit. How do you evaluate the health of uh, Indian democracy about six or so years into Modi's rule? Well, I think it's not as bad as people thought it could get, the point you were making earlier. But certainly 
there has been some erosion of institutional independence. Most recently, there's been some discussion of whether the Election Commission, which was actually a very strong organization built up as an independent organization in the past, whether it had become a little too close to the government. And I think you could argue like that about a number of institutions. That said, you know, there isn't mass scale imprisonment, etc. And what happens in a democracy like India is there are events which take place, which then make the people look again at the same set of characters and say, you know, were they what they promised us they would be? And is it time for change? It happened, for example, with Indira Gandhi during the emergency. And I have no doubt if any government stops delivering, at some point people will say, well, this is not what we signed up for, so long as democracy is alive. And that's something that we need to constantly look for, that the democratic process, the ability to make a change, the ability to speak through various channels. Now, even if the establishment press sometimes becomes a little too friendly to the government. There are other channels emerging. A lot of people have gone off the establishment press towards the internet or social media-based channels, and they're still making their voices heard. And of course, the external press can be heard in India, and India pays a lot of attention to what the rest of the world is saying. So it is not a case which is beyond redemption. Indian democracy tends to revive itself, even after perhaps becoming a little more accommodative to government interests for a while. It is interesting to hear you talk positively about the ability of social media to form a kind of counterpublic, because I think in the debate in the United States, we sometimes forget the extent to which you know, the powers that be may be hostile to free speech or hostile to the political values we care about and precisely some of the things that allow dangerous misinformation about the election or dangerous misinformation about vaccines to proliferate on social media. Also, are this really important redoubt in a situation like India's. But let me push you a little bit on the extent to which we should be comforted in the ability of Indian people to change their mind. I mean, clearly we've had some recent uh, state elections in India. And though the BJP was re-elected in one state, it lost a good number of them. It did not manage to capture West Bengal, which was one of its goals. And there was a big disappointment to Modi's BJP. So clearly at this point, uh, state elections continue to be reasonably free. Otherwise, those outcomes would likely have looked different. But how worried should we be when the Electoral Commission is starting to be undermined in its independence, when the Supreme Court of India, according to many writers, has really become more partisan? How reassured should we be that if India's people change their mind about Narendra Modi at the next election, or perhaps once after that, the institutions would in fact enable them to push him out in a free and fair vote? Well, I think you have to be vigilant about this. You can't be complacent and take for granted that the institutions will perform as they're supposed to. But they have so far. And there is a sense still that the ultimate strength of India is a free and fair election, which is partly why, as you just said, the BJP pulled out all stops to try and win the West Bengal election, to try and show we can do it there also in the stronghold 
of Mamta Banerjee, the leader of the opposition there. We can beat her. The people love us and they're showing that to us. I mean, the BJP's current leadership uh, flourishes under the sense that they're liked by everyone under every circumstance. And, you know, if you look at the popularity of Mr. Modi, it's very high. It is very high. I don't know what the latest numbers are given the spread of the second wave, but certainly before that, during the election, it was very high. Yet, the people in Bengal, even I think before the second wave really hit them, voted against. And that suggests that there are different issues making their way at different times before different electorates. And the electorate you know, takes a view of it, despite the enormous amount of money the ruling party in India often accumulates. It used to be the Congress before, it's the BJP now. But despite that, despite them controlling many of the channels of persuasion, there does seem to be a certain sense of independence. Now, again, I take your point that one has to be cautious about this, and I think one has to be. But I think at this point, it is too early to say we give up on elections. Um, I would be amiss if I don't mention one issue of more parochial interest to me in persuasion, which is that one of the members of our board of advisors, Pratapanumeta, was essentially, as I understand it, pushed to resign or forced to resign from Ashoka University, a new university in double arts college that he helped to found because of political pressure. I would love to hear your understanding of that specific situation and what it tells us more broadly about attacks on academic freedom and really core elements of free speech in India at this point? Well, I think there are lessons from that episode on every side. First, Pratap is a very, very outspoken and very thoughtful writer and has been critical of the government and various institutions for some time. I think in many cases with the right instincts and saying the right things. Of course, this hasn't endeared him to the powers that be, and they were constantly pressurizing the school that he was at in various ways. And to my mind, eventually the school, which had done a really creditable job protecting him against these attacks and saying, you know, he has the space to say what he wants. Somebody there, and this is still murky, went to him and basically said, look, our ability to protect you is coming to an end because they're stopping our ability to do all sorts of things if we don't quieten this voice. And will you cooperate or words to that effect? And my guess is at that point, he said, no, it doesn't make any sense for me to stay if that's what you're going to do. But I think the pushback when that happened from a lot of people in civil society saying, this is awful, you're a private university and you afford your faculty less protection than a public university would. A government-owned university couldn't fire any of its faculty because they're protected by, you know, they're a government job. The government has no ability to fire them unless, you know, it's gross turpitude or something like that. And so, Interestingly, this pushback created a lot more awareness. And Ashoka, to my mind, has at least rethought this issue. It can't sort of reverse what it did. But I hope these kinds of incidents build more support for the freedom of faculty to express themselves in various universities. So yeah, it was an unfortunate episode. Before that, the university had behaved very honorably. After that, it is reflecting Hopefully, it will strengthen the protections, but certainly it's made other universities. I'm affiliated with another university in the South. It has made us worry about how we protect our faculty 
against the encroachments and the pressures from government. In this case, it was primarily, in my view, a pressure on their ability to expand, which caused them to turn around and say, maybe we should not have this voice. And, and I see the point that in a way, faculty at state universities for various reasons, public universities may be more protected, but I think the ability of a government to use all kinds of different incentives in order to essentially force a private university to pretty much fire a faculty member is very concerning to me, right? I mean, the use of the regulatory state in order to create incentives for a private actor like Ashoka University, where they say, look, because of the government's power, we can't do basic things like expand our campus, which we really need to do as a young university, unless we push out this faculty member. That to me is a sign of institutional capture that you know, reminds me very strongly of Hungary and Turkey and other places where I'm no longer certain that there will be free and fair elections. Yeah, the temptation is to go down that path, right? To be able to control all the institutions, universities, election commissions, banks, etc., and move them in your favor. I think there is a little bit of a difference that here it was, the university could have said, okay, we don't expand if it comes at the cost of losing our soul. And free speech is really the soul of a university academic freedom coupled with free speech. And I think they could have made that trade-off and the government could have done nothing about it. The problem in many societies is when sensible, independent thinking men and women of integrity succumb to pressure. And then once that pressure starts and once enough people succumb, it becomes self-fulfilling. Why should I stand up? Because nobody else is standing up. I think that it requires a few to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, and we will not succumb. For there to be some semblance that, you know, the spark of democracy is not extinguished. And as I said, in a situation where events like the current one emerge, and there is a sense that the government has not done well, there's a public groundswell which can build on that spark and together they can make for change. Already you're seeing, for example, the Supreme Court becoming much more vocal about the stuff that's going wrong and trying to say maybe we need to not be entirely sort of sympathetic to the government's view. That's a nice distinction, but there's sort of two things that the episode with Pratap Mehta really show, which is, first of all, how important it is for institutional actors to stand by the principles, even if it has some cost to the institution, both because that's the right thing to do and because, frankly, for a university, losing your soul is a bigger price to pay than being unable to expand your campus. But then secondly, that you know the extent to which these private actors are being forced to make those decisions is a sign of the ways in which the Modi government is abusing its power. And that's really something to worry about more broadly. Just to be fair, and I think this is important, it is true that the government has tremendous power in India, but it's been true of every government. The extent to which they abuse it also varies, and it is at different levels for different governments. There have been past Congress governments which have also been very forceful. I think what is important is, As we progress, we have to create stronger institutions that push back on the government. We also got to shrink the power of the government 
to control many of these things which the private sector wants. And we need to do both those things. We need to create strong institutions that push back. We've got to reduce the arbitrary, unchecked power of the government. So it's more than just the Modi government. It is broadly the government interaction in India with the rest of the country. So I'm trying to get to some broader questions about the economy, but I just want to push you a little bit on this, which is that you obviously know the country much better than I. And even from my limited knowledge, I obviously understand that there were various moments at which Congress governments were in fact quite anti-democratic, certainly under Indira Gandhi, without a doubt. But nevertheless, according to Freedom House, for example, India has been classified as a free country for the last 25 or so years, since the late 1990s. And in its latest report, Freedom House has classified India as a only partly free country. And my understanding from the outside certainly is that the reason for this is that the severity of the abuse of power and the attack on independent institutions by the Modi government over the last five or six years has been in a different category from what we've seen at least over the last 20 or 25 years before that. Do you disagree with that? I don't disagree. What I'm saying is that they have used the weakness of the institutions against them. They have, in a sense, exploited what was already there much better than past governments. Maybe you might argue they have a different sort of sense of what they want to do, etc. But I think it would be a mistake to say, let's change the personalities and we are home free. I think we also have to say that we've realized there's a weakness here which we need to remedy. And that means significant reform because it has to withstand anybody else who comes down the line who has similar instincts. And that means a wholesale reform of the structure of the government and the economy. That certainly sounds right to me, and that helps to get us into the wider theme that I want to make sure we we spend the second half or so of a conversation talking about. So, you know, you are a defender of globalization and defender of the importance of economic growth. You think that the state often, in certain respects, does too much and regulates too much. But at the same time, you've also argued forcefully for the importance of local communities in the way that they are being eroded by some of the current form of globalization. Help us think about the ways in which globalization is an opportunity, but also the ways we should shape it in such a way that it doesn't erode local communities and local agency in the way you worry about. Well, first, I'm a believer that a globalized world offers the maximum productive opportunities. And by globalization, I mean the free flow of people, capital, goods across the world. What we need to figure out is how best to manage it. And to some extent, the primary theme in this book is as we've globalized markets, we've also globalized governance. Governance has become much bigger and much more high level than local. Some of it is from the pressure of the markets in the European Union. There's a sense that we need common rules across all the countries of the Union if we're going to have reasonable competition. And therefore, we try and impose a one-size-fits-all on everyone. Otherwise, we fear there would be a race to the bottom. But sometimes it's more than that, that bureaucracies get a life of their own And we try and elevate all the parts just because we can do something. We assume it should be done at the highest level at which power can be exercised. So power has flowed from the local 
to the national and often to the international. Take something like bank capital. When banks used to be local, you'd have either the town or the region determining capital requirements. Then banks became national. It was a national capital that determined bank capital requirements and regulations. And now it's determined in Basel in closed doors where central bankers get together and decide what global capital requirements would be. So in a sense, the integrated market pushes for integrated governance. And you have to resist that. Otherwise, you constantly get things elevated. An example, which is today very much in the limelight, is where are intellectual property rights determined? Many countries in the world signed up to the TRIPS uh, agreement, which basically said, here's a global agreement on how long we will protect drug patents. And if you don't sign up, you don't get any of the drugs. Uh, what that does is uh, is essentially elevate governance beyond, you know, sometimes countries should be able to determine how long they issue patents for. Um, a country that's developing may not want to issue long-term patents and may actually want to steal intellectual property. As you uh, know from the reading of history, many countries develop their intellectual property by stealing it from others. Today's strongest defenders of intellectual property did precisely that. So I think what we've done is taken away governance. Where this is felt the most is in the small town and municipality, where governance has been elevated far beyond, and many places feel totally disempowered. They cannot, for example, determine what they build locally. It has to go up to the state capital for decisions. They do not get local funding. This is true of many places in India. They have no independent sources of revenue. And so if somebody else controls the purse strings, they also control what you do. If somebody else controls the rules and regulations, they control what you do. And so people have a sense of disempowerment. So how, just because I want to understand sort of how to push back against that, and it seems to me that some of the examples you cite seem relatively straightforward. A local town should by and large be able to decide what they want to build on their own. Now, it may have certain trade-offs, right? The more complicated environmental regulations you have at the national level, the harder it is for towns to do that. And we certainly want some environmental regulations. So even there, there may be certain complicated trade-offs. But by and large, it absolutely seems right that the local town should decide whether they build a new school or a library or a road and how to do that. Some of the things you talk about, though, it seems like there's a much deeper dilemma. You know, if you have banks that are operating at a global scale, and if a failure of one of those banks could create a systemic crisis, which is felt around the globe, then saying, well, look, you know, let the local level determine what kind of capital requirements banks should have, you know, has a real trade-off, which is that it may in fact increase the number of economic crises you will have. So how do we think about those trade-offs and how do we think about what some things are that we can really push down to the local level without much loss and where perhaps the cost of doing that is too high? Well, take capital requirements, right? There's an easy fix. If you open banking services in my country, you follow my capital requirements. And if you want to do it in your own country, you follow your capital requirements. Now, there isn't presumption here that we all want to race to the bottom. Well, if I'm England and I have a bank headquartered in my country, I don't want its capital to be too low because I realize if it gets into trouble, my country has to support it and my treasury is going to be behind it. So I want my banks to be reasonably run, but I also want other banks that come into my country to be run according to the rules and regulations that I have. Now, 
in this day and age, having different capital requirements as you cross borders is not that difficult to manage. In fact, we do it all the time. So the point I think here is this need to bring all the capital requirements to a one-size-fits-all you know, used to be necessary in the past. We don't need it today. And we can allow country sovereignty to actually trump global sovereignty. I think most countries will find a reasonable level. What is needed for Uganda can be quite different from what is needed for the United States. They can be at different capital requirements. You know, if Uganda picks too low a level, it suffers the consequences down the line. Similarly, there are many situations where you should follow the principle of subsidiarity, push a par down to the lowest level where it can be properly exercised, right? I talk about education in Switzerland. The National Institutes of Technology are not going to be managed or governed or even understood by a municipality. They're big, massive institutions which require massive funding. But the local primary school is something the municipality can both fund, but also parents can actually opine on and manage. So you can decentralize small entities, local entities, and centralize the big, massive technology institutions. And there's a lot of institutions in between. The point I'm saying is, the more you decentralize, the more people have a sense that they have something in their control. And that's good for democracy. Having something that you see happening, having officials that you can reward if they do well and punish if they do badly. If everything is done at a remote distance from you, you feel disconnected. And you are, in fact, disconnected. You have no ability to influence. And so do you think that these two things are necessarily tied at the hip, which is to say that as we get more cross-border trade, it turns out that many of the predictions we had a year ago, according to which COVID-19 would somehow slow globalization and the world economy as we know it, as the New York Times wrote, were wrong and we're likely going to have more cross-border trade five or 10 years from now than we do today. Do you think that will continue to undermine the ability of local communities to make these autonomous decisions? Or do you think that there's a way of integrating the global economy more fully and at the same time redevolving some power and some agency to these local communities? Can we have our cake and eat it too? Yeah, I think we can. And that's where I'm saying the power of automation is you can integrate while differentiating. You can integrate trade but differentiate regulations because my computer can tell me what taxes I have to pay in each area. I don't need them to be uniform. I can change the product mix for each area. I don't need it to be uniform. So uh, what we have is the possibility of integrated markets, but differentiated governance. In the past, they were tied at the hip, as you say, and you had integrated markets and integrated governance, which tends to decimate democracy. And I'm saying, let's go back. One of the collateral benefits, I think, is that, yes, there are some roles that the central government has to play. And as markets get more volatile, insurance, social insurance is one of them that they play, et cetera. Those can get bigger and wider. What I'm arguing is, especially in those kinds of situations, having more localization also helps because it offers a little bit of a countervailing power to the power of central government. Having local governments, we just talked about India and how the state governments now have different parties ruling them than the national government. That serves as a certain amount of countervailing power, even in the darkest days, because they are always there to protect 
In the South, for example, one could argue that there's a very different situation from the North of India because of the presence of many opposition state governments. So the broader point here is decentralization is both something that helps democracy because people feel they can control the decentralized government better, but it also controls the power of the center much better. It serves as a buffer. Yeah, I think that's a really inspiring vision. I think some of the sort of level we've talked about at the moment feels very remote to people's lives, right? I mean, questions of the capitalization of banks are incredibly important and they're obviously right in your area of expertise. But to a lot of the people listening, they think, well, I don't really know what to do about that. What are some examples you think in the United States or in other developed democracies of where people should be asking to get power back into their own hands? Well, take some of the things that affect people the most, education. Often, the kind of education that is produced locally may not be what they really need or what they really want. Now, whenever I say allow more power over education to go local, people have in mind, oh, then people will start teaching creationism. It seems in the United States, that's the automatic response. Once you decentralize what is taught and how it's taught, you'll have a bunch of people teaching things that well, are unscientific. Not just that, actually. You could also get real ideological indoctrination from the left. I think there's some signs of local school boards abolishing grades, for example, including forms of critical race theory, which are highly controversial in the wider community in the curricula. And part of it seems to be that often when you have local governance, you don't have representative governance. But when you look at local elections, when you look at elections to school boards, when you look at elections to city councils, you have a very small percentage of the population turning out to vote. And so I guess the question is not just how do you get local governance, but how do you get representative governance? I think that's probably true in some of the most progressive parts of the country and it's also true in some of the most conservative parts of the country. I don't know that a majority of people in small town Texas really want the kids to learn creationism, but the most politically active people there may. The flip side is you could get the same thing at the statewide level. California has been on the extremes as far as progressivism goes in education. And we've veered from fad to fad in their education system. So I don't think any sort of level has a monopoly on going to the extreme. That said, I think when you know that livelihoods matter and depend on what is taught locally, you have more of an incentive to actually pay attention. Some of the arguments against decentralization are based on if the local people are as apathetic as they are today, think of the damage that could be done, as you correctly point out, if some extremists take hold of local government and local governance, right? But the question is, are they going to remain as apathetic if, in fact, the local locality has more power? If a bunch of extremists capture the local government and people see that it makes a difference in their lives, yes, we've got this craziness being taught in the schools, well, next time around, they pay attention and local elections become harder fought and you get more representation there. I mean, certainly political participation and political interest goes where decision-making power is. And exactly. one of the reasons why exactly. people don't seem to participate at the local level may in fact be precisely because there isn't much decision-making power there. And I would say just on this last point that it is possible to decentralize some aspects and not everything, to have some checks and balances on the process. That needs careful thinking. But having everything centralized is also not an answer because that allows very little local context to come in. There might be some 
activities, some learning, which is much more important locally and ties local people to the local environment, local jobs. Just to round off our conversation, I wonder how you would rate the performance of a world economy for the last year or so, or to put it differently, if somebody had told you, let's say in January of 2020, we're about to have a once in a century pandemic, this roughly is the shape of it. How do you think the world economy is going to hold up? How will we be thinking differently about the capacity and the promise of the world economy in a couple of years than we are today, to what extent do you think your answer will have changed? What has surprised you and what are the lessons you think we should draw on the economic plane from this terrible year of pandemic? Well, in industrial countries, we've got the best rebound that money can buy. We've spent enormous amounts of money. In emerging markets and developing countries, For the ones that have been badly affected by the virus, South America, Latin America, South Asia, there hasn't been as much money. The pain has been much more what we thought we would bear when the pandemic hit. And it's still not over because they are going to be the last in line to get vaccinated. So I think two years from now, we'll see a very different world. The industrial world will look a lot healthier. They will have significant debt loads, but many people will have jobs. They will feel relatively happy. The emerging world, some of them will benefit from exporting to the industrial world, but there'll be a lot more pain, a lot of it disguised because that pain doesn't really express itself that openly. But that pain will cause change. It will cause fractures within those countries, and we will see that emerge over time. So I really think we will not have seen the entire effects of this pandemic for years to come because don't worry, be happy, let's spend. We'll show up in debt down the line. The There's no money we can't spend. We'll show up in anger sooner rather than later. And that anger, as you well know, has political consequences, which will cause regime changes in a number of countries. That is yet to come because people are more worried about dealing with the pandemic right now But almost surely, we will have political movements which respond to the post-pandemic situation, and that will cause change. So I think we're not done yet. I think there's a celebratory mood with the vaccines in industrial countries. It is very far from celebratory in developing countries and the emerging world, but we will know the changes only over time. Well, on that important cliffhanger, I suppose, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Raghuraja. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.